Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Pastor Talk Podcast. Glad to have you with us as we continue, actually, as we finish our short series on Paul. We've looked at Paul from the lens of his missionary work and his passion for sharing the gospel, particularly with Gentiles. Last week, we talked about Paul's work as a theologian, as a thinker, and the absolute fundamental role that Paul played in Christian thought and in building Christian theology. I think um, this isn't necessarily connected, though I do think it may be helpful to watch those first. If you haven't seen those, maybe particularly the second one um, would be helpful before we begin today's conversation, which is Paul as a leader. I think you might even use the word pastor. It's essentially, what does Paul look like through the lens of his relationship with churches and with individuals as a mentor, as a leader, as an instructor. And Michael, I, I think, I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable, but depending on which perspective you you look at Paul from, mm-hmm. he does look a little different. And, and I think maybe the one that gets lost in that most often is this idea of Paul as pastor. Most people know Paul as missionary. Most people know Paul as theologian. But I think there's some surprising elements to Paul when we look at his work relationally with other people and churches. And I I hope we can unpack some of that today. Yeah, and I think that some of that's reflected even in the different voices that study Paul, Clint. You know, I've always thought it's interesting that when you read about Paul— You can read a theologian talking about Paul, and in those books, Paul is erudite, he is thoughtful, he's nuanced, he's reflecting upon all these different, uh, you know, both Jewish concepts and also Greek concepts. And, you know, it's fascinating when you look at Paul through the lens of theologian, you see that. We talked last time about Paul in Romans and how dense that is, how it's been mined throughout the history of the church. But then you can read Paul from the bandage of like a pastor. And if you read a pastor who uses Paul in some work, you'll see that uh, in those tellings, Paul is very practical. He's dealing with home issues and, and giving people instructions about what they should and shouldn't do with their income. And you know, if you're a pastor, you can see a lot of resonances with the kinds of concerns that Paul's is addressing in many of his letters, very practical things that need practical, you know, uh, responses. And then you have the very practical order of, you know, Paul training people and, and what does that look like? And he brings them with him and how does he fundraise? And so depending upon what vantage you look at Paul, I don't think you're finding a different person. I think you're just bringing a different set of questions, and when you ask those questions of Paul and of his letters, you see very different aspects of his life and his ministry and his impact. And I think today, as we turn our attention to some of that practical work, I think what's surprising about Paul to me is how well he held things in tension, because while he was very clear In many of his theological dictates, the things that he talked about, he was very consistent theologically. And yet, when you read his letters, you find some things, some pastoral counsel he gives that is, in some cases, I'd think, just downright surprising. He says things and you think, whoa, Paul, you're willing to be flexible about that practical thing when you weren't flexible about this theological thing? And I think it actually, for me, is not a problem. I think it's inspiring. I think it's interesting. I think it's a question that draws me deeper into the life of Paul because he seems to be able to do a lot of things and hold them all in tension, and I think that's a really interesting reflection of a person of faith. I don't know that I could uh, make this case. There may be holes in it, Michael, and so feel free to push back. But as I think of Paul and and the three roles that we've kind of delineated for Paul— I think of Paul the theologian as the foundation. I think that Paul's thinking through the faith, him leaving his Pharisaic background informed by it, coming into Christ, beginning to question what that means, his ability to dialogue with the scriptures that we would call the Old Testament and put together a coherent way to understand what God had done in Jesus is for Paul the foundation upon which he stands. But as he stands on it, and and this is where I envision, I I think he faces two directions. Mm -hmm. 
as a missionary, he faces the world, and he and he is out proclaiming Christ to Jews and Gentiles. He's arguing. He's he's informed by that theology, but he's essentially presenting Jesus to the world. And then I think there's the other part where Paul turns around and faces the church. And I think that outward-facing Paul and inward-facing Paul are not different people. There's a consistency to Paul, but they say different things. Right. And they, they solve different problems, and they face different challenges. And, you know, full disclosure, complete confession, as a pastor, I find the pastoral reading of Paul most interesting because I feel like I overlap with it the most. I feel like I perhaps mm-hmm. understand it the best. I've never been shipwrecked while trying to go preach in some foreign country. I have dealt with issues and tried to help people with advice or insight uh, as they face struggles. I have thought about when the church has moments that it has to wrestle with something, how do we do that best? And so uh, perhaps I'm just more sensitive to that reading of Paul or maybe more attuned to it. But I, I think in some ways, for me personally, and I don't suggest it should be for him, but pastoral Paul is is the most intriguing to me. So I think, Clint, and feel free to disagree with this, I think some people joining us here for this conversation may have, you know, not the most positive uh, warm feelings for Paul. I think that Paul is a little bit of a divisive figure in the New Testament, uh, especially if you're an individual who's read some of the uh, sections of Paul where he's making very concrete statements about women and their role in the church, or you've heard Paul make argument uh, about um, what conduct is and isn't in bounds uh, not, with the Christian church. Not getting married. Yeah, right. Yeah, so there's a whole selection in the New Testament of things that has at different points in history been held up. Uh, even Paul writing a letter to a slave owner has been used in American sure. history for some very particular ends. So if you come to Paul that way, we might admit from the outset that there could be some really troubled waters here. You you might not like Paul in the midst of the pantheon of New Testament figures. And that if that's the case for you, that's understandable. In fact, you know, that may be an interesting point to enter into this conversation. I would say, though, that when you read Paul from a pastoral perspective, Clint, I think what you begin to see is that Paul is, yes, a theologian in addressing some big universal things. That is in Paul, and and we talked about that last week. But Paul's also a very practical, down-to-earth, deal-with-this-issue individual. And if you overemphasize last week's conversation, if you overemphasize the broad umbrella of theological hard lines that Paul does actually draw, and you pretend that Paul does that in every situation, I do think you put yourself in a really precarious situation because Paul will, for instance, make very specific instructions about the way that women should behave in church in one letter, and then another, talk about his collaborative leadership work with women in the church. Talk about women who are leaders, positive statements about that leadership. And so that's the kind of tension, I think, that is so important to talk about with Paul, because if you want to make Paul a one-figured person— then you're going to end up in some really strange dead ends. If you're rather willing to look at Paul from a multifaceted perspective, I think you see he has some absolutes that he's trying to live out theologically, but in his pastoral work, he's trying to be sensitive to the people that he's serving. And that spirit, I think, makes Paul a fascinating pastoral figure because he tries to bring constant truth in the midst of human lived life, which is always in the process of transformation and conflict and and all of the things that it is to be human, Clint. And we find Paul making some really interesting moves within that and, and counsel within that that I think may soften him for folks who may come into the conversation, maybe even with a negative view of Paul. I want to I'll, I'll unpack this because it it may not sound controversial but I think there there could be controversy in it from our perspective I don't think the idea of hearing Paul say different things as reformed Christians I, I think maybe that's an idea that we can 
be comfortable with. If you are a person that lives further on the right side, if you, if you think of Scripture as kind of flat and uniform, if you think of Paul or if you're uncomfortable by the idea that Paul may have spoken with different voices, obviously this is going to be much harder and this may not sound acceptable to you. But I think, Michael, one of the things from our perspective that helps us is to be able to ask the question, not which Paul, again, I don't want to assume Paul has like multiple personalities, but what is Paul functioning as in this moment? You know, if if you read a book like Romans, yes, there's some pastoral moments in it, but that is far and away Paul the theologian. If you read 1 Corinthians, Paul, again, is informed by his theology, but the vast bulk of that letter is dealing with issues, dealing with problems, being a pastor. And and I think when we read some of those statements that trouble us from Paul, it is helpful to be able to at least imagine the conversation. Is Paul here being a theologian, making a statement for the entire church, or is Paul being a pastor dealing in the context of these relationships and this individual or this place and and I think that's a helpful if we can do that and if we can become comfortable with the conclusion we reach, I, I do think it helps in some of those moments. You know, for instance, I think Paul gets sometimes um the perception is that Paul is kind of a strict legalist, right. that, that Paul is big on rules and laws. And there are moments when that's true. I think if you ask Paul where the theological boundaries are, those are hard lines. I mean, those are mm-hmm. th- those are dark, don't cross, warning, do not, you know, do not overstep. But then you think of Paul's words to people who thought some food was sacred and other food wasn't. And he says, eat what you want. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Be grateful. Don't offend your brother or sister by eating. You know, And so there is a fluidity with which Paul approaches a lot of issues that I think gets overshadowed by those times that he seems inflexible. And when he's being inflexible, I, I think for the most part, not exclusively, but generally speaking, I think we see Paul being inflexible theologically Whereas I I do think he's inclined to be pretty flexible practically. Yeah. And so maybe a practical example of this, just to bring one up. I think there's yeah. many here, Clint, but just to pick one, I, I have here 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And growing up, Clint, this chapter, I'll, I'll throw it up here so you can see it. This, this chapter has specifically this section here about, you know, I fed you with milk, not solid food. I, I, when I grew up, this was interpreted as Paul saying, uh, you know, I I haven't given you the spiritual meat, right? That I haven't given you the theological depth, right? Because you are infants, you're children. And the way that it was read was that what you want to be is you want to be this spiritual deep thinker. You want to be a person who has the theology, who who can go deep in the faith. And the temptation of reading a, a section like chapter three here like that is you miss everything that follows, Clint is actually about these people claiming whose team they're on. You know, so I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. Um, And then Paul goes on to talk about we're not in a competition. It's not about who did the planting. It's not even about who does the reaping. It's about the God who does both of it. And I I raise that as just a practical example to say on, on the front end of it, it would be easy to make this statement, hey, look, Paul's saying what you need is theological knowledge. You you need to know the depths of the truth. When actually, practically, Paul is saying, stop picking teams. Stop picking mascots for your team. Stop, mm. stop thinking that it matters which one did the original planting or which one you get to call your spiritual father, or which one you call your leader, because we're all following Jesus. That's the practical thing that Paul's addressing in that particular moment in that congregation. And in some ways, Clint, that's surprising. You think Paul would would try to sort of dispel that with the theological, 
nugget with whatever truth that is and say, here it is, people. No, he he's addressing a practical thing. He's saying, stop doing this. And and there are theological reasons behind it. But Clint, this is it's chiefly an example, I think, of Paul being practical and speaking to a people and trying to address their concerns. Yeah. In fact, he uses their dividedness as the evidence that they're not ready for deep spiritual truth. Exactly. Yet. Right. Mean, that, exactly. For Paul, that is the sign that they're not yet able to process the things that he wants to tell them because they haven't even been able to do the simple stuff. You know, there's another really fascinating example, Michael, that, that I have always thought was amazing. If you read a book like Galatians, and, and yes, there are people that will argue whether or not that's Paul wrote it, but for our purposes, that's Paul's letter. And if you read that letter, one of the primary issues that comes up is circumcision, and Paul right. just absolutely digs in his heels. Under no circumstances would you allow yourself to be circumcised. That's going back. That's trusting the former covenant. That's that's not trusting grace, that you don't need that, that that's imposing on the Gentiles. This was an argument he made in Jerusalem with the council, that that's imposing on the Gentiles something that is not found in the gracious um, mercy of Christ. And so uh, he makes this very deep, very passionate, very edgy. And at one point tells him, look, if you want to circumcise yourself, go ahead and castrate yourself. Right. I mean, he, he, he minces no words in making this case. Then you flip over to the book of Acts, and he's with Timothy, who's a Gentile, and he is going to visit a Jewish community that is very high strong. And in the, I think it's the third verse of the 16th chapter, it says, Paul had Timothy circumcised because of their audience, because of the Jews that they were going to visit and their sensitivities. Now, how do you, how do you reconcile those two things? Well, Paul doesn't believe that Timothy needs Right. To be circumcised. He stands on his theological ground, and yet Paul the pastor is looking at all the potential problems and saying, you know what, this just doesn't matter. And because it doesn't matter, like eating meat or you know this day versus that, because it's essentially in his mind irrelevant, he can go ahead and do it without, without um, negating what he'd already said. He's not right. being a hypocrite. I don't think he's you know, schizophrenic or anything like that in, in his in his approach. He simply doesn't see it as an issue theologically in that moment because he knows it doesn't matter. And it helps him pastorally. It helps him relationally. So he just knocks down the hurdle before it gets in the way. And I think, you know, th that's fascinating. And that's very difficult to read. If if you want to flatten Paul and say he everything he does is the same— that, that's very hard to reconcile, and I think yeah. the same. You you brought up some of the language about women. I think that's similar. If you think Paul said one thing and it covers everything, I, I think you have a hard time accounting for those moments that he did something maybe not in keeping entirely with what he said because what he said was a theological principle, and what he did was something that he believed didn't matter and would be beneficial in the context. Well, because Paul, I think you can say consistently, is convicted that his theology or what he believes, we, we throw that word around, theology is what you believe is true, what, what you believe about God and, and God's revelation for the world. Paul believes that, that God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. He believes that. And he also believes that that revelation has a way of shaping real people's lives where they are and in their place. And so you see uh, in places like Ephesus, Paul will change his language just a little bit when he's witnessing in the book of Acts. You'll see uh, that when he's surrounded by philosophers, he changes his language just a little bit. That's not Paul suddenly becoming two-minded. That's Paul recognizing that the gospel has a different force in this place. The truth is translated here in this context in a different way. And what's really, really, I think, important about that, Clint, is you come to the text, 
and and for a moment you suspend some of the assumptions that you make and i think circumcision is maybe of the examples one of the better ones because circumcision for the contemporary christian is not a defining facet of faith it has really been settled historically and so for for the gentile christian today for the western certainly american christian whether or not you're circumcised has literally nothing to do with the expression of your faith. But for Paul, working in the midst of the, a Jewish church and the Christian church and those growing both together and, and flowing out of each other, this is a real practical concern. So while for us, it may not raise our hackles, for us, this doesn't get us on the edge of our seats, this was an issue that raised people's hackles. This did get people at the edge of their seats. This caused real legitimate debate. And so if you can put yourself in that perspective for just a moment and you're willing to accept that this was a really, really big deal, then you might be unsatisfied actually when you come to the book of Galatians here, Clint, and he starts talking about in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. If you put yourself in the perspective for a moment and you remember how big of a deal this was, how contentious of an issue this was for the earliest generation of Christians, Paul just said, it doesn't matter. And that's the practical pastoral theologian that we might miss because we don't have the same kind of emotional investment in some of these issues. But friends, if we understand the powder keg that this was resting on, and you see Paul just dismissing it, saying, theologically, guys, we need to, we need to not get hung up on this thing. We need to, we need to hang our entire lives on Jesus. Clint, I mean, that is a strong theological statement, and it was controversial. And in some ways, I think it sets a model for how Paul expects the church to encounter our own worlds and the translation of the gospel within them. Yeah, it's a really fascinating moment that the same man who says, if you're circumcised, stay that way. If you're not, stay that way. Then tells Timothy in the midst of one of his missionary journeys and, and meeting with Jews, let's just go ahead and do that. And, and again, I, I don't, I, I don't think that makes Paul a hypocrite. I think because of his theology, because of his understanding, he feels the freedom to do that. And, and you made the case, Michael, that he changes his approach. He changes his language. He changes the points that he makes like anyone would do knowing their context, right? That knowing what it takes to be heard. In 1 Corinthians, which again I would say is a very pastoral book, are those wonderful words that are well known. Um, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I'm not. To the outside of the law, I became as one outside. To the weak, I became the weak. I became all things to all people, that I might save some. And I think that's the pastoral heart of Paul. What does it take to engage these people? What does it take to lead this congregation? What does it take to navigate this issue in a way that is consistent theologically, but more important, consistent to the God that Paul understands has offered us Christ. And I, I again, I, I find that Paul fascinating. I find that that work of Paul intriguing, the, the Paul that is willing to say hard things that people don't want to hear, but then the Paul who, who won't give up on the church being the church and encourages people. Though in, in amazing moments when he says, you know, some of you used to be Protestant uh, prostitutes and murderers and et cetera, and you used to do these things. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, if the, if those things are accurate, that's a rough bunch. Right. And Paul continues compellingly to tell them, but that's not who you are now, so don't act like that. Act like the thing you have been invited to be. Live into the grace and the identity that you've been given in Christ. You are already those things. Don't let anything hold you back. And I I, just, I find that Paul very compelling. Paul is an absolute uh, stunning intellectual. 
his theological chops are almost unprecedented. But for me, when Paul applies himself and his leadership to how do I help people live out their faith, I, that's when I that's when my ears perk up. I think. And I think Clint, that maybe a, a really helpful textual example that I think you are uh, pointing us towards here, just to throw up, is from you know First Corinthians nine here, and he is talking about this idea: to the weak I became weak, so I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. But I think verse twenty three is critical here, Clint. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. That is the beautiful move, I think, here in Paul. It, it's, he can say, listen, I'm trying to meet people where they're at, but it's all for this purpose, for the good news of Jesus Christ. That, that word gospel means good news. It's the idea of proclamation. Good news is only news if it's shared. So for Paul, this intrinsic reality is that He's seeking to connect with humans where they are, recognizing the complexities of being human, whether they're Gentile or whether they're Jew, whether they're circumcised, whether they're not, whether they uh, eat food sacrificed to idols or whether they don't, whether they're married or whether they're not. All of these, and this is a small list, are things that Paul addresses in his letters. In the midst of all of that complexity, Paul sees it all for the gospel and note it's the gospel. And I think if, if we had Paul, if we had the luxury of having him here at the table, we would have already talked way too much. What he would have, what I think he would share with us would be an uncompromising view that Jesus has changed everything, mm-hmm. that, that Jesus has transformed the world. I think what we would also find is that the world is much more large and complex for Paul than what we sometimes give him credit. He recognizes that Jesus has changed everything, and everything is a lot. And so he's trying to address people where they are. He's trying to speak words that are meaningful. And, you know, when people get hung up on, what should I eat? What should I not eat? Which, by the way, Clint, some of those conversations still happen in our modern time, in some cases for health reasons, for some cases for spiritual reasons. When that happens, I think Paul says, let's not get hung up on that. Let, let's Whatever you do, what, whether you eat that or don't eat that, do it to the glory of God. Whether you practice this day of rest or whether you practice a different way of Sabbath, do it to the glory of God. I, I think Paul is maybe comfortable with the interpretation of the gospel in a variety of contexts in a way that cuts against even some of our own cultural assumptions, Clint. If you're a Western American, you have this idea of individualism and free choice. Maybe we maybe we have gotten to the, into the habit of thinking, yeah, but I've got my group. I've chosen this group, and this is what we do. It's right. Maybe Paul does offer a critique for us to say, no, all of that is subject to the ordering of God's will. And, and and our ultimate purpose is to discern that and then for that to have a real practical import in our lives. Now, that's messy. Clint, I mean, that opens the door to lots of difficult conversations. Um, but maybe that helps us see why when Paul writes, he can often be very direct. I mean, the word that came to mind first was caustic, but I don't think he was intending to be uh, caustic. I, I think he was seeking to make strong points to make it clear that it matters that you behave in the proper way. And and so maybe that provides for us a little bit of evidence as to some of the difficulty of being people of faith. We too will have to have some direct and challenging conversations if we're going to live out the faith together. Yeah, I don't I don't want to, you know, beat this thing into the ground, Michael, but I think you know, again, Paul the theologian, when he feels like people go outside the bounds, he says things like, I handed them over to Satan or have nothing to do with them. And and yet in other instances where there's an argument in the church, he urges, he says, please help the people who are arguing. Please try to have unity. And, and Paul, his bias for the church is oneness because he believes that oneness m- most challenging in the form of Jew Gentile in his context but he believes that oneness reflects what God has done 
in the cross. For Paul, it's always about Jesus. But because of what Jesus has done, Paul believes that we are one people and that the distinctions and divisions that the world uses don't belong in the church. And so Paul can, on one hand, speak theologically about something like sin, and it's bigger than we think it is. Because when Paul speaks theologically about sin, he doesn't mean the things we do. He means the condition of our heart. He means our bias toward rebellion. He means our disobedience, our selfishness, the the inner plagues. And when Paul speaks pastorally about sin, that's still there. Mm -hmm. But then he says, look, yeah, if you eat it, you don't sin. If you get married, you don't sin. If you don't get married, you don't sin. Here's what I think, but he actually goes so far at one point to say, this is not a word from the Lord. It's my opinion. I I, I just think th- there is an openness to Paul that gets, that gets lost. And to see him apply that openness to navigating challenges inside what we would call congregations or communities of faith, I, I, I think is really is really helpful. It's we mm, I think we we run the risk of doing Paul a disservice when we take Paul's pastoral words and try to build theology on them. I, I really think it only works the other way around. I think the theology has to inform the the practical. I I don't think it works well to go the other direction. And I think often we've tried to do that. Now, theologians, Bible scholars, historians could maybe tear that apart. But it, but as I read it, Michael, I, I think you have to understand Paul theologically so that you can see how Paul's theology allows him some flexibility practically. I, I I don't think you can start with the flexibility and get to the theology. I, I really think that's kind of a one-way street. Yeah, and you mentioned this earlier, Clint, but I think it, it's important that we emphasize, I, I think, what is a consistent note throughout Paul's letters. I think if you look at a book like the Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, uh, they're obviously a congregation with a lot of tumult. There's a lot of social things happening there, and and so— you know, in that sense, Paul's addressing a lot of things. It's like a lot of whack-a-mole happening in that letter. There are other letters like Philippians where that's less the case, where his his instructions are more positive, more encouraging, um, and there's less directive, less sort of dealing with particular issues. Though, interestingly, if you look at Paul's letters, I think a constant crimson thread is the reflection of Christ in the unity of the body. He uses the language of unity. He uses the language of body. He uses the language of spirit. He talks about being in Christ. These are all different ways. And by the way, we could go on for a long, long time with all of the different metaphors and ways that Paul directs the churches, and that I mean plural, all of the churches he writes to. When he directs their attention to something, it is consistently to unity. And, you know, I want to just give an example here from 1 Corinthians again here, verse 18, he's about to talk about communion, and he's talking about there are divisions among you, and I believe it. There have to be factions among you, um, so it will become clear who among you are genuine. Paul has very harsh language for the factions that happen in church. He's going to go on to talk about the Lord's Supper and say that actually the way you're practicing the Lord's Supper shows not your unity, but your divisions. It shows your selfishness. It shows the ways that you're trying to puff yourself up and make yourself great. And he comes down hard, says this should not be the way that it is in the Christian church. And, and so, Clint, I think that is, mainly, in many ways, maybe even today the most troubling aspect of Paul's pastoral theology is because that's hard work. I mean, if you take Paul at face value, if you just say, hey, Paul meant what he said and he really cared about the unity of the church, he let's, let's for a moment believe that he conceived of the church as one body, mm-hmm. then it is 
absolutely reprehensible when we find ourselves dividing the body, when we find ourselves cutting one another off from each other, when we find ourselves, um, one of his letters, Paul talks about, you know, the church uh, is having members suing one another. I mean, practically, when the church fails to live out the, the difficult painful, sometimes grueling work of living together. I don't want to pretend as if that's an easy task that we just set our mind to and it happens. But Clint, I mean, I, if you're willing to allow that the pastor, Paul, cared about the unity of the church and the people living peacefully, not just where they live, but in Christian fellowship with one another, that is a very strong and convicting marching order for what it means to be church. Absolutely. And and I think that's a great example, Michael, because there we see Paul the pastor, but we see Paul undergirded by Paul the theologian. Why does it matter so much that the church acts like the church? Why why are these divisions so troubling? Because Paul the theologian believes that in the cross of Jesus Christ, God has reconciled himself to the world. And that means that God has reconciled people to one another. In the grace of Christ, we are forgiven and we forgive. In the grace of Christ, we are brought into the, the person of Christ, the body of Christ. And as we, as we join each other in that body, it then becomes an insult to the body. It becomes a, a foreign reality to let division and divisiveness fester within that body. And Paul believes that it's good for the church. But the reason it's good for the church is because it reflects the goodness of God in the covenant of Christ. And so th those things are inseparable. And and yet, the same Paul will say in a couple of different instances, you know, it, right there in the same letter, Michael, in Corinthians, it, hey, you have a guy doing something that's unacceptable, put him outside of your fellowship in hopes that he will repent. Because it, it's unity can't be practiced at the cost of faithfulness. Y unity can't be the blanket we all live under when there is sin and when there is um, things that go beyond the pale of how Christians are called to live and think. The same would be true in places like Galatians, where those outsiders were trying to sell a different gospel. They were trying to teach that you could be saved in Jesus, but you had to get circumcised to do it. And Paul says, absolutely, have nothing to do with them. So unity is the core of how Paul understands the church, mm -hmm. but it's a unity that has to be centered in the cross, centered on the cross, and, and isn't negotiable in mm -hmm. in many ways, though how you practice it is. Eat that food, I'll eat my food. We'll come together for communion. We'll we'll share a meal. We'll you know be good to each other. But theologically or behaviorally, when you get outside of the bounds, there's danger to Paul. And I think you know it just. I think you you need both lenses to understand Paul's experience and encapsulation of the gospel. You you just you can't look at it from one or the other. I, I really think you need both. And I, we're not going to linger here. I don't think we'll stay here long, but I, th I think it needs mentioned in a conversation about Paul, Clint, is it's striking when you read his letters how often Paul talks about things as practical as praying. And, you know, if you're a theologian and reading Paul, it's easy to read past a lot of the stuff in his letters as fluff, right? He he talks about these deep theological concepts all the way through Romans, and it would be easy to think that's who Paul is. You know, let's talk about grace. Let's talk about faith. Let's talk about reconciliation. Let's talk about atonement, right? Let's get into Paul, right? But you look at a book like Philippians here. This is Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you. Now, that's beautiful language, and if we dare to think that Paul meant it, that means that Paul's praying, that he's a man of spiritual discipline, that he is thinking of this congregation, that this isn't just platitude, it's not just happy theological vocabulary strung together in a sentence. No, Paul truly cares and is truly praying for these folks. And so, 
it's, I think, just a very helpful frame because when you have someone in the Bible like Paul, it's easy to put them up on a mantle and say that they are the illustration of perfect Christian. No, they're human. Paul, he's a human. He's a fully human person seeking to live out his faith. Now, he's brilliant. He is living at an incredibly important moment in the distribution of the gospel, in the spreading of the church and of of the work of the Spirit. But he's also on his knees praying. That's my point. I mean, at the end of the day, Paul is also doing the same spiritual practices we're called to. And, and in that, he's just brother Paul. He's, he's another disciple seeking to follow Jesus. And, and there's a way in which that humanizes him, I think, in a helpful way. Yeah. It, you know, Michael, I, it, one of the dangers, I suppose, of talking about Paul in view of his roles is that our perception of those roles may not be entirely accurate. You know, when we think of theologian, we think of smart person in an office at a seminary, right? Mm-hmm. They, they read books and they think through ideas and they teach and they preach. When we think of a, a pastor, we think of somebody who engages with a conversation with people, with a congregation of people. When we think of missionary, we, we might think of some of the challenges. But there's a fascinating passage in Second Corinthians where Paul's sort of apostleship has been challenged. And in the 11th chapter, he responds to that. And he gives what it what he kind of presents as his resume. In other words, people have been saying, "What's so great about Paul? You you don't need to listen to him. We we've done more than Paul. We're better than Paul." And Paul says, "Okay, I, you've kind of forced me into this. I don't really want to do it, but but I'll answer it. And here's my resume." He calls it his fool's boast. And I, I just want to read a couple of these things. And I want you to think about that. This is all the same man. The same man who brilliantly writes Romans, the same man who preaches and teaches, the same man who has taken the gospel throughout his world also says this, I have far more imprisonments, countless floggings, sometimes near death. Five times I have received the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked, and then he goes on and on and on. I think at our peril, we forget that among all the other things Paul was, he was scarred, and he was bruised, and he was bent, and he was hobbled because of the punishment he endured for his passion about Jesus Christ. And we shouldn't we shouldn't separate that. When we talk about this man who is pastoring, when we talk about this man, Paul has literally earned his stripes. He has mm-hmm. been beaten. He has been whipped. And he will not quit. His tenacity to continue to take what he believes to be God's saving word to the world and share it with people in whatever way that he can and knock down whatever hurdles get in the way of people responding to it and living into it. I, I, you know, I think we can argue about whether Paul should have said this or should have done that. Those, those are fine. I, I don't think we should forget this, that at the core of Paul is also a man who is unwilling to stop. Maybe even we could go so far, Michael, as to say unable to stop. Mm. He he is compelled mm. to do the work of Jesus Christ as missionary, as theologian, as pastor. But the three of those things coalesce. They come together. They they are the one person that we look back on mm. and call Paul and he suffered for what he did. Uh, there was joy in it, there was beauty in it, there was wonder and amazement in it, but there was hardship in it. And I, I think that's a helpful thing to keep in mind when a couple thousand years later we try to dissect what he said, what he meant, when when we argue about the particulars. I, I think this is helpful to to have in the mix. Yeah, because ultimately Paul 
truly believe the gospel, right? And I think that that, yeah. that is a thing that is easy to miss when you start dissecting perspectives or roles or you start thinking about, you know, what what are the complexities of the person? It would be easy to think that you, you know, uh, one day Paul puts on his pastor hat, another day puts on his theologian hat, another day puts on his traveler hat, another day puts on his tent making hat. Yeah, I mean, it would be easy to think that it could be done that cleanly, but it can't. I mean, the reality is every day Paul woke up and put on his pants just like everybody else that day. And one of the things that is unique about Paul's life is how clear of a vision he had, not just a vision of Jesus when he got knocked off a horse, but a vision of the gospel of how Jesus changed everything. And he believed that to the very, very core of his being. So whether he was talking to a church uh, that he knew well and was addressing pastoral concerns or whether it was a church he didn't know well, like the Romans, and he's addressing much higher theological conversation. In the midst of all of that, in the midst of the beatings and the floggings and the and the trouble, the shipwreck, in the midst of all of that life lived, it was a person seeking to integrate the revelation of who Jesus Christ was. When we talk about the good news, we're talking about Paul trying to live it. And if that is our only takeaway here in the conversation about Paul, Clint, I think that is what I hear Paul inviting us to when he says, follow Jesus as I f- follow me as I follow Jesus. This idea that Paul is telling us, you too can have a vision for how Jesus changes everything. That good news can animate every part of your life. And if you're a person joining us for this conversation, then you share, like Clint and I, who are also in this circle, the constant need we need for that gospel to renew our vision. We need to be reminded that that revelation changes everything. There's a part of every one of our lives practically that can be shaped by that revelation. And friends, that is a beautiful gift to see in this man. Yes, you're going to read things that Paul wrote that are going to trouble you, they are going to challenge you. You're not going to read Paul and always think happy, fuzzy thoughts. That's that's not going to happen. But you can read Paul and be inspired by a man who believed that Jesus changed everything, who tried to take that seriously in people's real lives. And I think that we're called to do the same. I think Reading Paul or, or considering all that we know of Paul, Michael, is both inspirational and humbling. I mean, when you get down to it, this is a guy who got up every day, who went out into the world to try and live the faith and share Jesus with people. And some days that meant that he preached and people listened and converted some days that meant he had to sit down and write letters to incredibly messy, messed up churches. And some days it meant that that afternoon found him chained to a post, taking <laughs> right. a beating, right? right? And, and the incredible thing about Paul is that at the end of every one of those days, he gave thanks for what had happened in it. He, he gave thanks for God being with him. He gave thanks even for the rough spots and the suffering that the gospel had had brought to him because he was so deeply and completely convinced that the cross of Christ was the center of who he was and who he was to be and and the thing that God was doing in the world. And uh, again, if you don't like some of what Paul says, you probably in a lot, probably in a, a big company. But um, at the end of the day, for me, this is a man who deeply sought to live out the faith and did so even amidst challenging times. And, and I think we, we who inherit that owe him a great debt in, in terms of all of the roles that he filled. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't know where the church would be without Paul, and that that gives me uh, that gives me a humbling, humbled appreciation for who he was and what he did. 
Yeah, I think that's a, a, an excellent summary. And so I'm not going to add to that. I'm only going to say thank you for joining us this far into this conversation. Of course, a short series, three talks about Paul. This is the first you joined. We'd encourage you check out the first one about sort of his autobiography, his life. Then uh, we talked about his theology and here talking about his uh, practical pastoral sort of perspective. Um, hope there's been something along this way that's been helpful for you. Also want to say, uh, friends, if you are listening to this by the audio podcast, uh, please uh, go out of your way. Just today, we'd ask, uh, give this uh, podcast a review. That actually has a way of uh, sort of telling the podcast place wherever you're listening that other people might enjoy this. So if you found it helpful, uh, definitely give it a review, uh, five stars if you would. If you're watching this on YouTube, know there is an audio version of this and feel free to jump in and subscribe to that. And uh, if you're on YouTube, feel free to uh, subscribe and like. We'd love to have you join us for the next conversation, which I think is going to be engaging. So uh, glad to have you with us here today. Our uh, friends be blessed. See you next week. Thanks, everybody. Hey, we want to thank you for listening to this broadcast. We're grateful for the support and the connections, the relationships we get to make through some of these offerings. We hope that they've been helpful. We know that there are lots of choices that you have, lots of things you can listen to. We want to make you aware of some of what we're doing, and we greatly appreciate you being a part of it. Absolutely. We want to just thank you for being one of our audio podcast listeners. It's amazing to have you with us in the midst of our conversations. Of course, I hope you know that you can find the whole archive of all of these conversations at pastortalk.co. We would love for you to join us there. You can find options for subscribing by email. You can easily share things there with other people who you think might appreciate recordings like this. And of course, we just want to welcome you if you're ever interested in joining us for the video podcast. You can do that on YouTube. It is youtube.com slash FPC Spirit Lake. There you can comment and engage with us. Or if you would prefer to do that uh, without going to YouTube, you can actually just click the link in the description of this podcast where you will be able to send us a form and information and, and reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you and engage in conversation with you. Thanks again for taking time to be with us. We look forward to our next conversation and can't wait to see you then.